Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week, Under the Radar, lights, parks, casinos. The days are getting shorter, and we're shedding some light on the very real savings local governments are pocketing from the switch to LED lighting. Then we turn our attention to the parklands and parkways of the Emerald Necklace and some interesting moves to make it safer. And just how many Bay State gaming locations can get in the game. Later, we're hosting our food and wine gurus, getting an appetite for apples. We'll hear about what's ripe for the picking and what's hot in the cider game. But first, joining me in studio, Garrett Quinn, digital news editor at Boston Magazine. Hi, Garrett. Hi, Alec. And Seth Daniels, senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal and Chelsea Record. Hello, Seth. Hello, Carly. And Peter Katz is senior editor for WGBHnews.org and political analyst for the Scrum Podcast. Welcome, Peter. Great to be here. <laughs> All right, let's start right off, Peter, with uh, a, a story that just gets your goat, and that is the uh, booze tax uh, oh. proposed by uh, Linehan and Baker. Maybe I should have said get your glass. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but you um, point out that you think this is just a boondoggle. We should note that they um, had the last hearing on this uh, initiative um, last week, and so now I guess it, some decisions have to be made. Uh, tell me what, well, why you don't why you think it's a bad deal. Well, uh, first a disclaimer: mm-hmm. um, I don't drink, so <laughs> this, this proposed one to two percent tax on uh, alcohol served in taverns, saloons, restaurants would not affect me at all. So I can speak with a clear conscience. There's a couple of reasons. Um, w- one, um, I, I think it's a political. Uh, I, I think it's a, a political move that won't be going anywhere, largely because the governor and House Speaker DeLeo are opposed to adding new taxes across the board. So that makes me think this is grandstanding. Two, I, I wonder if they're acting as sort of straw men for Mayor um, Mayor Walsh, who uh, is himself a recovering alcoholic and is is quite understandably in favor of better outreach in, in therapy for people. But one of the things that to me is a red flag is when this was at first when this was first proposed, it was largely to deal with alcohol problems. Now it's been extended to the opiate crisis. Now, I'm not making light of, of either thing, but I'm not sure dealing with this on a city level is the best way to go. Let, let, me, let me interrupt you right there and say that um, they're pushing that uh, angle, that this money, this extra money would go to pay for um, treatment, 
uh, potentially for people who have opiate abuse problems. And they made a video, and I want to just play a little bit of sound from the video because it's this is the video called 20 Cents Makes Sense. And the 20 cents, of course, is the, is the resulting money that would come from the, the tax. In the last year, 46% of the patients who reported to the emergency department could not access treatment. It's heartbreaking uh, to see the amount of people who actually need treatment and they can't get in the facility because they're, they're all filled up. I stopped wanting to treat my addiction at the time because I couldn't get into programs or, or detoxes. Again, that's from the promotional uh, video, 20 Cents Makes Sense. And their emphasis, Peter, before Seth and, and Garrett get in on this, is really that there's no treatment facilities, and so this would pay for it. So it's not so much trying to attack the whole problem, but that's a very narrow place you could go. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there aren't enough treatment facilities. That's true. Okay. Seth, what do you say <laughs> about it? <laughs> well, it is a conundrum. The, the treatment facilities that work um, are, are too small. And um, they don't. They are constantly not having enough funding. A lot of times they have to shut down. They get to open back up. They're always talking about um, the state budget and how they stand to lose this or that. Um, and it's heartbreaking because there are so many, as, as the, the audio said, that, that can't access treatment. And the, the opiate crisis is truly a crisis. It's, it's overwhelming um, every day. It's, it's worse. But at the same time, um, we're, we're, we're going on... Neighborhood businesses, I've heard a lot from, from the restaurants in our areas um, of Boston that are, are simply saying, you know, it's going to do one thing, and it's fewer drinks. <laughs> That's what people will do. Hmm. They'll buy fewer drinks. And we've had a number of letters from the Distillers Association. I think it's a national one. Um, they've come in at least three times with letters to the editor to us explaining their position that it's just it's not, it's not going to generate the money they think because people will just spend less. Um, that these neighborhood establishments especially are going to really be hurt by it, you know, because the margins are very thin, especially on alcohol. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I, I tend to agree with, with Peter. I, I know Speaker DeLeo, and he is not going to go for any new taxes. I don't know. This is sort of a, sort of a local one. Um, so I don't, I don't know if he would change on that or not, but, but I would sense that, that no, it's, not, it's, it's a city thing that's going to pass probably, but not get past the state house. So do you think um, because of the, the focus is on opiate treatment centers, Garrett, that this can get through? Well, there was a, a te- there was a, a group of uh, recovery professionals testified before the city council earlier this summer. And one of the things they brought up is that the real problem in uh, recovery services and the recovery psych programs right now is at the back end. There's there's an extensive amount of uh, entryways into this thing. But what eventually happens is the programs sort of tail off. There's just not as many. They're just not as good. They're not as well-crafted. Uh, further along you go in the stages of recovery. So what happens is people get into a recovery place. They detox. Something happens. They fall back out, and they just go back into the cycle again. So it's just you're constantly going into cycle one. One of the things that I've heard a lot talked about this proposal is that this would bring in revenue to help aid the later stages of the recovery program. Um, that said, the, the one thing that that is always fascinated me as a reporter that's paid a lot of attention to the, 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 the history of sort of like the city's liquor law battles is that Boston has, is, is uniquely 
uh, regulated by state laws when it comes to alcohol alcohol and licensing going back to mm-hmm. the early 1900s. As you, as you may recall, when Iona Pre- Councilor Iona Presley was fighting to extend, raise the cap on the number of licenses for bars and restaurants. So Boston... Extremely expensive, right, by the way. It's extremely yeah. expensive, mm-hmm. and the city doesn't have... You couldn't... The city doesn't have the autonomy that would normally exist in a situation like this to do this. So the involvement of the governor and Speaker DeLeo... And to a lesser extent, Senate President Stanley Rosenberg changes the the uh, dynamic of this argument. I, I, I'd also add another point. Um, the, the city of Boston has been struggling for many, many years to get assigning kids to the right public school straight. <laughs> yeah. If they can't get well, kids to school straight, I question their ability to help in the noble effort of ha- having people recover. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is something that's best dealt with at the city level. There is, too, well, I, would, I would like to add, there is truth to their argument that the city does, is sort of the, the central, the, the, center, the center of recovery for the, they're not just the Massachusetts, but for the whole New England region. Mm-hmm. People just end up here and come here to seek retreatment. It's not like they're going to Portland, Maine, or Worcester. They're coming to Boston. Well, they say it would raise $20 million, this 20 cents that makes sense. Um, And I just wonder, uh, as a person who does drink, I'm not at the bar every night, but wouldn't after a while I just get accustomed to the fact that it's 20 cents more? I don't Mm -hmm. know that I would. If I've decided I'm having a glass of wine, I'm having a glass of wine. And I'm not sure I would change my pattern. People, there there are, you know, since they implemented the localized optional higher meal tax, I forget, I want to say it was a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. various cities and towns have implemented it. I can't, I can't remember all of them. And they have – I want to say that there hasn't really been any noticeable decline in uh, business at these places because you're paying an extra point seventy five percent on your meals tax. Uh, so uh, I think that's what it – or it's a – it's anywhere from I think yes. – uh, yeah, mm-hmm. three quarters of a dollar. So uh, there, there's, there's data to back this up that these taxes, if they're of this such a tiny amount, tend to not really have that much of an uh, uh, effect the way that, that they're initially projected. But their effectiveness, I think, is also questionable, too. Yeah, and I don't think Seth is wrong or the businessman that he that he quoted are, are wrong in saying that it will stop me also right. before I go out. Now, once I'm out, I'm paying the 20 cents. Right, right. But, if yeah. I, but I might say, but you <laughs> know what? Three four, I'm not going not out. Care. I'm not going out tonight because i got to pay the new tax on the right. food, and I'm not paying 20 cents right. more. Mm. I can drink my Chardonnay at home, but I never drink Chardonnay, so that's <laughs> aside from the point. All right, moving on, uh, uh, an opiate-related piece, Seth, that you brought to our attention with regard to baby Bella. Oh, yeah. um, you've been following the story very closely in your area, mm-hmm. and um, it's tied as you say, really, to the, the heroin epidemic. It is, just mm-hmm. what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, the, the, the most striking thing, I think, um, that was passed around uh, town and Winthrop and, and some of the surrounding communities was the before and after picture of uh, the boyfriend who was accused of doing this. And two years ago, clean-cut young man, and now he does not <laughs> resemble that person at all. And, and there, this was a story of, of, of heroin addiction, um, Apparently, I, I heard that they started with pills, at least the boyfriend, which seems to be the case all the time, the, the Percocets and the OxyContin, and then they move on to heroin. Um, so people are really, um, as, as tragic as it is, and you, you can't help, you know, the bigger story is you know, the child and how she must have lived and uh, experienced life uh, for her short time. But uh, the other part that a lot of people realize, this is National Recovery Month, um, and people are understanding 
at least in that area, um, where we have so many vigils and so many people who are lost to overdoses. Um, the fire department in Revere, as I've mentioned here before, is the first to carry Narcan, which is the thing that re, uh, reverses an opiate um, overdose. And, and they do hundreds of those a year. I mean, there, were, there was a vigil in Revere, uh, 215 names read, people died. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and these are, you know, uh, the people who are there to remember them are grandmothers, mothers, fathers, um, politicians. Um, it's, it's every walk of life. And so this story is really hitting home on that angle in our area because it's really becoming um, a message for how children are affected by this. Uh, as, I, as I had told you, there was on Labor Day in Revere a baby hanging out of a fourth-story window. Um, the police busted in, and the mother had overdosed on the bed. Um, who knows for how long the baby crawled up on the bed, was hanging out the window. The police saved the baby, thank goodness. But it's another similar story. You know, had the baby's foot not gotten caught in the bed, it would have tumbled, and who knows mm. what would have happened. And there are just these all over the place. You see it on the police logs that I look at every every week. Children running in the street, two years old, no parent. You know, they have to take them in and figure out where they go. Um, this is, uh, you know, the, the smaller angle of kids at school who just don't get picked up. Um, we always hear about that too. Um, so children are, are paying a price. I think Bella was the, 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 maybe the thing that's going to, you know, put everybody's, uh, mind towards the fact that this is really what the opiate crisis is about. You know, children come and they get left behind and, and sometimes in her case they die. Well, well, Garrett, I think it also reminds us that uh, when the criticism is aimed at DCF, um, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're talking about a whole other huge issue of substance abuse. And yes, that's part of the sometimes uh, affecting some of the clientele they have to deal with. But geez, there are whole other institutions set up to deal with that. And if you're trying to make sure that the kid is getting taken care of, that's a lot uh, to pay attention to. One of the things that I think is all, that that when people talk about DCF, they when you look at the numbers of the cases, you look at this, they, you see, oh, they have to deal with ten cases, five cases, but that means that's just a case. That could be five kids, that could be four kids, that could be mom and dad. In this case, drug problems. It's not just uh, one kid. Um, in in in, the, in this instance, this was. This I, I I think I can speak for everybody here in this instance. Mm-hmm. The, the, now that we know the backstory to baby Bo, baby Doe Bella Bond, this is I don't think anybody could have imagined a scenario this awful. Yeah. This entire situation, this girl's minute from her conception to her death, her life was terrible, and I, I can't and framed by drugs and framed and by drugs, yeah. right? So there's there's the there's the DCF element to this story. There is the heroin opiate addiction element to the story. Uh, there is the uh, there's sort of the the, the the and those are sort of they have come together and become sort of the central elements to this thing. The the heroin thing to me that struck me uh, more than anything is that they went on. I think you know, we don't even know how many days they went on <laughs> a binge afterwards. It was just every report said several or multiple. Sure. And to me, that's it's just it's it's such a tragedy. And um, I, I read. There's, you know, there was a story yesterday. Um, I, I read the I read Irish papers pretty frequently, mm-hmm. and there was a paper in one of the Irish Times yesterday where it, this isn't something that's just relegated to Massachusetts. This is a global problem. Mm-hmm. A baby on a bus in Ireland, a three-year-old baby, uh, w- a person was on heroin, and they had another needle, and they 
they stabbed a child with the heroin needle and oh ejected the child with heroin. So this is this is beyond just our little corner of the world. This is a problem all over the place. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we have to deal with it, Peter. And um, I, when we when Seth is talking about it, communities reading off three hundred and fifteen names, mm-hmm. um, and you start to think about how many children are impacted by those families and those persons who whose names are being read off. This is serious. Sure. Typically, we start to pay attention, we meaning the community, yeah. the society, when there are kids involved. Are we going to do it this time? I think we will for a while, um, in, in, and then it'll pass. Um, I, I say that not cynically, as I usually am, but sadly. Uh, I think this is a, a, a problem of worldwide dimension. Um, I've never seen an example of a story that said, hey, here is a city, state, town, nation that has conquered this problem. I I think it's sort of an – not sort of. I think it is an existential challenge where we have to just try to do the best we can. Um, And um, I just don't see a way around that. And Mm. I I feel uncomfortable being such a downer. Um, The the, – the stuff that affects the children just really gets to me. Yeah, me and um, and it, it, it's easy to blame DCF for a lot of things, um, but you can't blame DCF for deficits in human nature. Um, you know, there was an interesting idea, and in geez, I wish I could remember who put this forward, but someone has suggested that <clears throat> it might make that DCF might make better use of the resor- the minimal resources it has now if if it divided more clearly into a department of children and a department of families, mm. and that maybe that because the, the 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 needs of the child are often so different from the needs of the family. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'd also raise the question of at the moment, you know, people of goodwill said, "Well, it's important to keep the families together at any cost." Maybe we should look at that. Yeah. Is it? it certainly wasn't in Bella's case. Well, well I it think, was, I wasn't think in Bella's. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, it could, yeah. but it wasn't in the case of. Of of her the Bella Bond's mother's two previous children, she had two kids that were taken away between two thousand and one right. and two thousand six. So, and somehow she slipped through the cracks. Right. Mm. I think I think it's going to come. I think that now that uh, there is a clear un, uh, understanding of the widespread nature mm-hmm. of the drug abuse, as Seth has outlined, even in a small community, yeah. then I. They're going to be looking at this, the children and the family situations a little bit more differently. They're going to have to because um, now you know one of the drivers of mm-hmm. leading to the abuse. Sure. So that's very scary. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Boston Magazine's Garrett Quinn, the independent news group's Seth Daniel, and WGBH's Peter Katz's. Um, Garrett, you know, I just hate talking about casinos because I just feel like, <laughs> haven't we said it all? But just when you think... Oh, come you, on. I love it. Oh, I know you love it. I know because this is your beat. But uh, just when we think nothing else can happen in this twisted tale in Massachusetts, the Mashpee Wampanoags win. And God. everybody said, nah, they're not going to win. But they won. they won. So now we got more casinos than we know what to do with potentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Potentially, yes. You're looking at possibly uh, on on Friday on uh, Thursday, the uh, Massachusetts Gaming Commission left the door open for 
building a uh, another casino less than 45 less than a half hour uh, according if google maps are correct <laughs> google maps is correct that uh, from the mashpee wampanoag site it and if you if i when i read about this i started looking on i went started plotting where these casinos would be and potential casinos would be and in the southeastern portion of new england you're going to be less than 90 minutes from upwards of 5 6 7 possible gaming establishments and if they build a third in connecticut because the foxwoods and mohegan sun have got about got together because they're concerned about mgm they want to build a third gaming commission uh, b- gaming palace uh you're looking at you're looking at uh you're looking at plain ridge uh taunton and brockton <laughs> all within about a 45 minute drive of each other or less you're all you're going to have places with over a thousand slot machines each other, then you're going to have win. You're going to have whatever's going to happen in Springfield because this oh week they God. changed their plan on they're, they're taking away the tower, which was one of the huge selling points mm-hmm. of that casino. They were going to build this 27 story tower. They haven't built anything notable on the Springfield skyline in like 40 years. Um, plus, you've got uh, facilities in New Hampshire, uh, and who knows what else is going to happen in Rhode Island? You've got two facilities one in Tiverton and one in Lincoln, and that's right over the border. I, I don't know. And then there's slots in Maine. And then there's slots in Maine. You have two casino slot parlors in Maine. You've got one in Bangor and then one uh, between Bangor and, like, Bethel. Um, uh, they're just slot parlors. Uh, it's a glut. It's a glut. Mm-hmm. It's a glut, but it's uh, – and what this sort of – what this happened, what this mean, what what this potentially could mean is that the wildly the, – the projections of riches for cities and towns won't happen. But – the other side to that is all the negative effects may also not happen. I've always looked at, in covering this process, I've always looked at the projections from opponents and proponents and taking them both with strong grains of salt because I think, don't know if the market is there to support all these facilities. Mm-hmm. I, people want to gamble, but do we, are we, where, like, where are they all going to go? Well, that's my guest, Gary Quinn of Boston Magazine. Seth Daniel, um, <laughs> they're not going to these casinos. Hello, we took just the survey from the first week or month of Plain Ridge through the roof, and then the next one, down. Mm-hmm. Already, that's yep. one. Yeah. And we don't have the rest of these. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and the, I, 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 I agree with Garrett. I mean, there's just so many proposals. There will be a lot of gaming where there wasn't. But even looking into the future, I mean, what about DraftKings? Online, the online sports mm. betting. I mean, the, I just take the younger Those are the people. The fantasy, fantasy, uh, yes, fantasy the, football or one day right. thing, and they pay out money. And, and I don't know if it's legal or not. I think the attorney general is looking at that. But but they're doing it, and there's a number of them. And I just look at the younger generation, you know, twenties, just getting to be thirty, and these are folks that don't leave the house for much of anything, yeah. <laughs> and they're not going to go anywhere. They won't go to a store. They won't go to a grocery store. They like to have things delivered to them. And, and when they gamble, they want to be in the house. They're not going to go to a casino, I don't think. And I wonder how the future, you know, in 10 years down the road, when these places are really going to be, you know, needing those customers who aren't, aren't accustomed to getting out and going there are going to, hmm. you know, where's that's yeah, going to happen point. like that. Yeah. There's one other thing I want to point out, too, and that there is a potential ballot question in 2016 yeah, right. that could yeah. add another yeah. slot sure. parlor. Yeah, that's in Revere. Yeah, yeah, well, I think now, I think that's going to, people have a little bit different thought. Think, what what thought I find amazing is we were just talking about um, an epidemic that revolves around 
illegal addiction. Right. Well, now we have state-sponsored, government-sponsored addiction. You, you know, it, 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 it just speaks to this, to this sort of bizarre bifurcation of, of our public life here. Well, but the bottom line was supposed to be the economy. But the, so the question now is, can a glut still uh, right. produce, mm-hmm. if you believe that, um, monies that would support local economies. That's the reason why a Springfield was out in front on this because they need that money mm-hmm. if it's coming in. But well, it's anyway. it's yeah. such a it it it's such a soccer play. Oh well, it, I, I it, think so. But and, <laughs> and you can see it now. The bait and switch. Yeah. There's going to be a big tall tower now. Maybe there's not going to be a big tall yeah. tower. Well, the, and you know, to to be fair, These to them, not, they're trying to compete with how do we still stay in the game if, every, if all the sand is shifting. So well, I don't... Well, well, I, I, I all I would say is that <laughs> cities like Springfield wouldn't make a deal with um, agents of heroin addiction, well, but right. so they're making a deal with the agents of gambling addiction. All righty. That's Peter Katzis. You write him <laughs> about his comments. <laughs> <laughs> Garrett, you had one final word. I, 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 just, I, I just wanted to point out, too, the changes in Springfield, they're not... <laughs> All they are changing the design. They are not eliminating any hotel rooms or any uh, elements to the any any uh, thing of, in terms of accommodation. They right. are just changing the design. But a huge selling point, their, their point of their design was this was the sleek tower in the sky. Now it's going to be a flatter and wider hotel with the same. Yeah, I, I think they're trying to adjust yeah. to stay in the game. That's, that's right. my point. All right. Well, uh, it's something that once again, Seth, you brought us a story <laughs> uh, months ago that was counterintuitive about. Uh, saving water and how much water we've been saving by um, actually um, doing the stuff we're supposed to be doing to save Mm -hmm. the earth. And now evidence that the city is saving millions by switching to LED lights, those bright lights that some of us Mm -hmm. find a little bit uncomfortable. Well, I'm also a photographer (laughs) and lighting's very important to me. I don't like those lighting. (laughs) I don't like that white light, but but I do, um, when I pay my tax bill, I, I hope that maybe... That's the uh, saving grace because they are saving a lot of money. And I watched them go up and wondered and then asked the question. And, and it, the savings was far more than I could have ever thought. Um, a lot of communities are doing this. I think Boston's sort of leading the charge. They have, uh, as of the middle of the summer, they had 70% of the actual the old mercury vapor streetlights replaced with the LED, um, which use, uh, they're not, they don't get hot and they use very little electricity. Um, so the, what I found out is that they saved from one year to the next $4.7 million, That's a lot which of money. was a lot of money mm-hmm. when you're talking about um, that. And they paid $15 million to get these kits up. 70% of the city cost $15 million. So they got almost $9 million from the federal government because there's a lot of rebates and mm-hmm. energy efficiency things. And then they saved four, so they've nearly paid for it in one year. Wow. And I'll add... Um, the savings was like 32 million kilowatt hours, um, and that would power about 4,600 homes for a year. And they last longer, the LED yeah. lights. 15 years. Yeah. 15 now, years. I was critical of the, the city earlier. This is something that Boston does very well and many yeah, other cities absolutely. and towns do. This look at infrastructure becoming more energy efficient. Um, in In many ways, if you look at the... The, you know the the larger battle to save the planet or at least keep the planet largely livable cities around the world and in the United States are really leading the way and I think one reason for that is it's taking place literally at a grassroots level mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think this is really a, a, ter- a terrific program, and it's a hats off to City Hall for this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was really excited about this. One mm-hmm. of the cooler things is you've seen that you can see with this, these types of lights being implemented around the the country is uh, when you take a drone and fly high above it, or you look at it from space, it is so much brighter than yeah. it once was. You, you always get these great photos of say like. Uh, you know, South Korea and North Korea, how like there's all these bright lights. Well, you look here, and it's like looking at that a before and after of of certain places with these lights. It's unbelievable how much mm-hmm. brighter they are too. I know the big complaint about them though is that it's not the same. <laughs> People complain about these types of lights at Christmas because they're the, not the they're no. not true white lights. They're yeah. sort of this like. Mm-hmm. Brightish, well, but it's no. yeah, it doesn't bother me. That's how I feel about corks and wine bottles, but right. I, but, <laughs> but, but screw caps work. I mean, you know, <laughs> I will say. <laughs> um, so that's a good thing. I'm I'm very excited to hear that news. Now, Peter, speaking of government that you think is a little logy, um, <laughs> there are some moves, some beginning conversations about making uh, the Emerald Necklace, the Parklands and Parkways, safer. And uh, you've uh, put your cynical eye back on that process. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's not it, it's not the end result. I mean, the essential problem here is that when the emerald necklace was built, you know, there weren't cars, mm-hmm. and 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 then when roads like the Jamaica Way were put in, the the traffic was really light. And getting across the street, let's focus on the. Uh, the, the, the intersections, you know, near Elliott Street and Jamaica Plain. But, um, you know, there was a time when you just press the traffic light, the traffic would stop and you'd walk. Um, now the traffic's a steady stream. What sort of gets me, though, is that um, I can understand there, there is a need for a hearing, but someone's not doing their job here. And, and what I mean is there's apparently we have a need to make these crosswalks safer so that people can get to the Emerald Necklace to enjoy it. But at the moment, there's no budget for it. There's Mm. no plans for it. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't hold a hearing about it, but it might make more sense to announce to everyone that, folks, we're beginning a long journey here, and um, this is an informational meeting to find out what you're looking for. I've never been shy, so I'll tell them what they should be looking for. Okay. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's the most expensive. What we need to do is is sort of build tunnels under, uh, you know, under these path, uh, uh, the, these roadways. Um, stopping traffic, you know, is is doesn't make a lot of sense. And also, pedestrians in Boston, if people haven't noticed, are very <laughs> ill-disciplined. I mean, I yeah. see on weekends kids just running Just like the drivers. Yeah. I point out, just like the drivers no in this Very, yeah. very good point. But the real fix here, I think, is to, to make sort of underground walkways. And unfortunately, that stuff's expensive. Hmm. Well, mm-hmm. but there have been concerns about safety so I think that'll drive some of the hearings. But to your point, if there's not going to be any point at the end of that, I don't know what we're doing having the conversation. But all right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing to just get people's views on the table, I guess. Um, I'd like some good news in the end of these discussions. And so, Seth, I turn to you to talk okay. about this uh, story that you pointed out to us, this hidden gem in Chelsea called mm-hmm. the Leonard Florence Center for Living, sure, um, which is a home for patients with ALS. And, and I should ask, uh, with all the ALS fundraising here yes. and that's 
grown out of Boston. Are these pe- people benefiting from a- any of Absolutely, yes. Okay. Uh, they mm. participate. Um, mm. They know the people who started it mm. and the patients, mm-hmm. that is. And, and they actually had a walk um, this morning um, there in Chelsea to, uh, to help um, uh, fund this, this really innovative they call it a greenhouse. That's the name for, for where they live. That's specially designed. It's the only one in the world, really. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, I'm very – I mean, obviously, we report on Chelsea, so we yeah. know it intimately. <laughs> yeah. But I'm very surprised it hasn't gotten more attention regionally, if not nationally. Um, and know, how old is it? Well, it's been there for 10 years, I'd say. Um, so it's wow. still relatively young, you yeah. know, in the scheme of things. It's, yeah. it's yeah. very cutting edge, and, and the reason why is it was designed by a man – with ALS, who was an architect, and he got ALS. He was sitting downtown Boston looking out at the Boston Common, and as he was drawing um, some plans one day, the pencil fell out of his hand, and then it mm-hmm. happened over and over and over, and then finally he had his diagnosis. His name is Steve Sailing, and he's he's very well known in, in this community mm-hmm. of, of patients and, and doctors and, and, and places that treat people with ALS. Um, so it's a very innovative place, and one of the residents is named Patrick O'Brien, who um, was found by Steve Sailing in a nursing home in Baltimore, um, getting good care, but all he could do was stare at the ceiling, you know, and, and, and this is a fatal disease, mm-hmm. you know, let's not kid ourselves, it's, it's bad, and, and, and uh, it's fatal, and it progresses slowly, and, and eventually you just can't move, and this gentleman can only move his eyebrows, and Patrick um, has created a movie over 10 years, about the onset. He was a filmmaker before mm. he got it, mm. so this was in his wheelhouse. And about the onset of ALS, very raw. He was a raw filmmaker before, and this is even rawer mm. about, um, uh, about how, you know, how it came on. He, when he couldn't film anymore, he hired people, and then he had a snag. You know, he got to a point where he could only move his eyebrows. He was in a nursing home. Mm. There wasn't anything. But this particular home really um, allows high quality of life for people with ALS. Um, they can open doors with their eyebrow. Mm. <laughs> wow. Technology wow. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. They can, um, yeah. I, the guy Steve, he can communicate by um, using the, his glasses somehow, the rims of his glasses. He can choose words. It, it's, it's phenomenal. Very sophisticated. Wow. So this guy made a movie, and he enlisted, he directed the movie via email and, and communication. It takes a long time for them to communicate, but he did. He directed a movie. He won his category in the Tribeca Film Festival in April, and just recently, last week, um, won the Audience Award in the Milan Milano Film Festival in Italy. Huh. And it's uh, Whoopi Goldberg's greatest fan. Wow. <laughs> she, oh, wonderful. She loved the movie. We haven't got to see the movie yet because it's in the Film Fest circuit, and it'll be premiered, I believe, in December and then in Boston next year. you got 30 seconds, Garrett. I, I didn't understand the title of it. Well, what's it's, the what's the? <laughs> I, I, it's such a funky name. It's uh, it's the reason why um, is because he loved donuts. He ate donuts like crazy before he got ALS, and after ALS, he could no longer eat a donut. I was gonna yeah. say I thought it had something to do with food. That's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, we'll have to look for that. And you know what's uh, the extra good news from all of this story is that. Money that people give to yeah. to charities oh, actually tame. gets used, and, they, yeah. they and would, you can see it. They would know? love people to visit because yeah. it's it's, it's an open, They have open houses. Just you don't have to know anybody there. You want to tour it and see what they do because 
a lot of the money we do raise, um, you can see exactly how it's being used to I help love people. It. So does right, that well, mean this crazy dumping ice on your head no, no, it's, makes it's, a difference? No, yeah, it does make a difference. <laughs> okay. it's, the second, it's in its second iteration. Yeah. Well, great way to, to end, and I want to thank you, uh, Seth, Garrett, and Peter, for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Garrett Quinn is the digital news editor at Boston Magazine. Seth Daniel is a senior reporter for the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal and Chelsea Record. And Peter Katzis is senior editor for WGBHnews.org and political analyst for the Scrum Podcast. Up next... Greece's economy may be struggling, but its food is still coming out on top. Plus, forget pumpkin. Apples are the real flavor of fall. We'll talk to Yankee Magazine's Amy Traverso and Boston Wine School's Jonathan Alsop about how to get the most bang for your bushel. You're listening to Under the Radar. Crossley, this is Under the Radar, and now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's the first week of fall, and apple season is in full swing. It's time to up your apple juice game with hot cider and apple wines. Here with me to take a bite out of these food stories and more are Amy Traverso, senior lifestyle editor for Yankee Magazine and author of the Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hi, Amy. Hi there. Happy All- Apple season. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is my favorite time of year. <laughs> also with me, Jonathan Alsop, founder of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lover's Devotional, 365 Days of Knowledge, Advice, and Lore for the Ardent Aficionado. Hello, Jonathan. <laughs> Hello, Callie. <laughs> this is a great conversation I'm excited to have because this is lip smacking. Mm. I like apples <laughs> and apple foods and apple wine. Yes. Apples are like the last, apple season's like the last hurrah of the growing season. You know, it's the last big, fun, celebratory harvest. Oh, you know, I never thought about it like that. But um, uh, Amy, your Apple Lover's Cookbook has gotten much enthusiasm across the online communities uh, (laughs) from people who love apples. I just want to point out one um, recipe that we will post online, which is the apple pumpkin muffin. Those are great. (laughs) Those are great. Yes. Those are really yummy. It kind of combines all the flavors of, I know everybody's like griping about how much pumpkin spice flavor there is. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, but it does really hit those two fall notes, which is good. Okay. So from the person who's written the book on apples, literally, um, what's the best thing that you can tell people to do or to eat or to taste or how to approach the whole upping our apple game? Other other than buy my book. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Sorry. Sorry. All right. (laughs) Yeah. No. <laughs> but but I would say that different apples uh, behave differently. They taste very different from each other. 
and they behave differently when you cook with them. So choosing the right apple really does make a difference. For example, if you make apple crisp with a Macintosh, you're going to get like a layer of applesauce and then a layer of topping, and it's not going to be that great. I've Whereas, done that. Yeah. It's bad. And yeah. it, you know what? Macintosh is very – it's a delicious apple when you cook it. It makes a great sauce. It makes a great cider, but not so good for baking. So uh, look around. I, I have information online about how to choose the right apple for your recipe. If you're talking about pies, you want to use something that holds up like um, – um, Granny Smith or Northern Spy or even the the newer varieties that are so popular like Pink Lady, Honey Crisp. Those are actually really good baking apples because mm. they don't just kind of melt away the second you heat them. And then some recipes call for you to peel them. I'm speaking to my friend Patricia who didn't know that when <laughs> she made her apple pie. It was a little chewy. Yeah, yeah. yeah we call that stringy apple pie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just thought yeah. I'd point that out. Yeah, and, you know, the quick the way to peel an apple is you peel around the top, so you kind of go around the top, and then you turn it over, go around the bottom, and then you peel down the sides. Mm. And it just somehow... I've timed myself. I had to peel a lot of apples when I was doing this book, and that's the the fastest way I came up with. All right, so you brought an apple that is your new favorite. Oh, boy. Okay, (laughs) this apple, to me, this apple is really big. It's it's a big thing. And it's it's actually native to California. It was bred, can't say native, it was bred in California (laughs) in the 1940s by a guy named Albert Eder, uh, who lived near Mendocino. But it is now showing up on the East Coast more and more orchards. So I'm showing you this apple. It's like kind of, it looks a little like a yellow delicious, a little mm. yellow um, conical shape with a little bit of a pink blush on the skin. Mm-hmm. But when I cut it open... Uh-oh. Whoa! Whoa. <laughs> oh my goodness! Is, uh, I'm loving it. It's pink inside and different apples. This is called Pink Pearl. Wow. And it is a... Um, it basically is the result of crosses between red fleshed um, apples uh, that are like crab apples mm-hmm. and sweet apples. And wow. so to kind of breed in the sweetness but keep that pink. And it tastes like strawberry. Mm-hmm. Now, these That's apples are very early season apples and they're a little bit pa- – they're not – by any means bad, but they're mm-hmm. they're getting a little grainy. Uh-huh. Um, it's really kind of a late mm. August, early September apple, and they're mm-hmm. not great keepers. But they are so beautiful, and they cook well, and they taste great, mm. and they make a gorgeous wow. tart or pie. So That is great. Yeah, mm-hmm. isn't it great? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a few of these. There's another variety called Surprise, which is also pink-fleshed. Ask your grower, do you have any of the pink-fleshed apples? Wow. I'm seeing them in more orchards. I'm seeing them... Um, up at, at Neshoba Valley Winery mm-hmm. in uh, Bolton, Massachusetts, yeah. and I've seen them at Allison's Orchard in hmm. Walpole, New Hampshire. Only in America. <laughs> Only in America. And you know, yeah. I, I'm I'm from crabapple country in, in Tennessee because there's lots a lot of crabapples. So right. This is very appealing to me yeah. on that level. Yeah. So, Jonathan, there's nothing I like better than drinking my apples. <laughs> Let me just say. Now for a slightly different delivery system. <laughs> and I love apple wine. Um, and I love whatever you're about to open up here that I've never seen before. So you're going to have to explain it. So yes. what so, is it? So right now, um, cider mm-hmm. is really um, having its day. Um, this is part of the change in a lot of forms uh, that we're seeing in wine and spirits. You know, the emergence of cocktails, um, uh, urban distilleries. And what we've got here is I've got, I've got uh, Down East Cider. 
Um, and this is hard cider we're this, talking about. This is this is hard cider. Okay. The main form, and it's in a it's in a can. So it's, it looks that's like a soda note. can. It's yeah, exactly, that's exactly I, what shocked. it is. It's yeah. an old yeah. school. It's an old school. Um, there's a great brewery in uh, Baxter, Maine, and their motto is, uh, we do what we can, we can what we do. <laughs> so in terms of this change in form, um, you know, making this, you know, cider with apple, um, uh, with apple juice, um, and this is Down East Cider, and this is, first thing I'm going to pour for you is the original blend. Oh, it's blend. kind of a yellow color. And yeah. then yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to let you taste the okay. unoriginal okay. Um, the unoriginal blend. Okay. Hard cider is actually the fastest growing drinks category right now. Yeah. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely huge. Um, and I would okay, say that it's good. a native product that we can make really well in New England with native mm-hmm. fruit. Yeah, mm-hmm. no kidding. And we can excel in this particular category. This is very long, good because I've had some other hard here. cider. I didn't like it. was too hard, I mm-hmm. think. Mm. But this is yeah, really this is good. Well, you see this a little, it's, yeah. it's a little um, cloudy. It's a little unfiltered. Yeah. Um, now here's but the very un- apple Now I here's like. the unoriginal. Okay, and unoriginal. this has got a little, this is just another blend. These are it all made from, like lemonade. These are all made from Maine um, apples. And nice. um, oh, that's good, but I like the original better. That's just me. <laughs> mm, yeah, this one's really dry. Yeah, very dry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would um, be uh, good, good with foods. I yeah, can see how actually, that would be delicious. I've with... got some uh, Cabot cloth bound cheddar here. Yeah, mm-hmm. that this would, would be a really well, nice pairing. Oh, that, that would be wonderful. And with it. you know, yeah. when you talk about yeah. what is, you know, what mm. is cider? What makes cider? What it is? Cider mm-hmm. is essentially there's, there's apple cider. There's pear cider. Um, it's essentially apple. Um, it's essentially apple wine. It's more like wine than it is like beer. Oh, interesting! Um, even I though did it's not lower, even though it's lower in alcohol and sometimes has a little fizz, it's actually technically you, you make it the same way that you would make wine. You take app, you, you know, instead of grape juice, you take apple juice or pear juice, and um, you ferment it. You lightly, uh, lightly ferment it. Well, I have to say, um, the unoriginal, which mm. is the drier with the cheese, so is good. fantastic. Right. The cheese brings right. out the fruit in that cider I d- I in such a nice I didn't need to way. know this combination. And you see in the glass, it's a little bit bubbly. Yeah. You know, it's not little. over it like beer. It's not as, as bubbly as soda mm. or sparkling wine. But it's got a little bit of spritz to it. And um, the biggest, um, the biggest uh, uh, change... Is exactly what you what you were talking about uh, with the unoriginal is this shift from sweet cider mm-hmm. to dry cider, and we see that in other things too. We see that in rosé, you know, dry rosé. In, in wine speak, dry being the opposite of sweet. We see it in rosé. Dry rosé is emerging. Um, we see it in riesling. Dry yeah. riesling is emerging. This sort Finally. of shift in taste mm-hmm. now to this um, really dry. Um, apple cider. And I would argue that all of the shifts to the dryer are because people are foodier, if Mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. And so when you Mm -hmm. realize that it can, Mm -hmm. uh, I could have a first sip and not like it on its own, but with food, it was delicious. It was perfect pairing. Yes, when when the sugar comes down, it sort of reveals the the acidity, the zippiness, the edge of the wine or the edge of the cider or beer, you know, works the same, same way. Um, and it's that edginess that really goes great, um, really goes great uh, with food. So another, you're absolutely right. Another local <clears throat> cider that I think 
hits the mark between sweet and and dry perfectly is Bantam, mm-hmm. which is in Somerville. Mm-hmm. They have three different varieties. I that love these are, locals. Yeah, they're so great. Come you in. can go to their tasting room and have a classic tasting room experience mm-hmm. with you know pour. You, you stand around. You, you're you're drinking multiple different types of cider. You, it's, it's so you fun. Think, you think you were at a wine tasting? You know, people, yeah. People yeah. are standing around saying things like you know hamster cage and you know, <laughs> Stop. Uh, you know just slinging Stop. a flint, slinging a flinty, flinty. You know, if people are slinging, t- talking about cider, talking about it, um, um, connecting to it, yes. and you know, thinking about it in the same way that we've been thinking about wine for you know thousands of years. Okay, but no. that's a big shift in form, I think. Um, I think it's, it's. I think it's definitely a big shift. There's mm. some wine here that we want apple yes. wine here that um, uh, from. Vermont, it Vermont. looks like. Yep. And while you're opening that, I have to say high praise for wine, apple wine made here in Massachusetts, Still mm. River. I don't yes. know if you are. I, love I am Still such River. a fan of yes. that. Every time I'm at a, a tasting mm-hmm. and they're at the table, mm-hmm. I will confess I take a sip because you can know it's really to be sipped. And I wander around, then I come back. Like and then I wander around <laughs> and I come back because <laughs> it's so good. It sim- is sim- so good. And similar to what we got going on here, yes. apple, apple, ice, wine. wine. And I didn't know Vermont had any, so this is interesting. Yeah, this is Eden, and it's just wonderful. It's a, the technique, and you you can back me up on this. Maybe is uh, it's a process of of concentrating apple cider, fresh cider, by freezing. Uh, taking away the the frozen water mm-hmm. that rises to the top, doing that multiple times until you get an incredibly concentrated juice, yeah. and then fermenting that. Yeah, and what happens? Tends to be sweet, and it tends yes. to be sweet. Mm-hmm. What hap- What happens when you? F- well, well. So these are these are late oh, harvest. So these are late harvest apples. So these are super super awesomely sweet in the first oh my place God. as apples, <laughs> and then when good. you freeze it, when you freeze a fruit, it breaks up the. Cellulose of the cell wall, and then that's how that's how some of the water, more of the water, escapes, and you have just much more of this concentration of. Um, we're happy those awesome, cell walls were broken awesome, down because awesome this flavor. is really good. Yeah. It's so good. I just gave. I'm passing mm. out tastes of uh, Tarantes, which is mm. a cheese, a Vermont cheese. Mm. Uh, it's an Alpine style, kind of like a Gruyere, but not exactly Gruyere. Mm. Mm. So good with this this wine. And if people wow. are thinking about it, cheese is an, oh, uh, a very good match with apple wow. wine because, you know, if you're thinking it's sweet, wow. yes. You can also use it with desserts. You can use it with some mm. apple desserts. I would also pair it with pork. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm from the South, so pound right. cake people, right. really mm-hmm. good. Right. Uh, yeah, I have a right. recipe for an apple pound cake in the book. That, well, I, know I've so said, I know I've said this before, but that um, uh, the uh, Lalu... Goat, goat's milk ice cream. Yes. This would be great on that. I know. This would be great with that. Or you're going to hell, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's bad. This is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is delicious. And, mm. I, and again, the uh, apple wine made by Still River is called Apfel Ice, mm-hmm. I believe is how you pronounce it. Yes. And it's quite delicious. We should note that Canada for mm. a long time had sort of the monopoly on ice wine. Yes. And, some apple wines, um, and they have one a product that's called Neige that people yes. may be familiar with. It's yes. a, from I, Quebec. I, from Quebec. Yep. 
But uh, uh, our uh, our friend uh, Jonathan uh, Richard Offrey of the Passionate Foodie did yes. a side by side taste test with the um, Canadian wine right. neige and also with the Still River and, and pronounced Still River the winner. So oh. there Yay. you go. They're, and they're great. They're and they're out yeah. in Harvard, Massachusetts. They're close to to Boston. Yeah. Apple, they're well represented Apple here. Apple country. There yeah. you go. All right. Well, what do you got there? Uh, yeah, I've got one yeah. more fun thing you can okay. do with apple cider. Mm. Instead of fermenting it, you okay. can boil it down like maple syrup to produce something called cider syrup. And this is a real hot ingredient. It was just featured in the Wall Street Journal this week. Um, This is made by a wonderful family uh, cidery out in in Hadley, Massachusetts, called Carr's Cider House, C-A-R-R. They cook this cider down just like maple syrup until it thickens and darkens and it is like the essence of apples. Oh my god, this deeply is good. concentrated. But it still manages, even though they cook it for so long, it doesn't have that cooked flavor that sometimes you get. It just tastes like fresh. Mm. You can pour it over yogurt. Mm-hmm. You can wow. this is put delicious. it in over pancakes or put it in batter to give something a really wonderful like if you're making muffins, put a little wow. bit of this in there. Or if you're making cider donuts, use this. This is so good. I've never seen this before. This is really quite cider tasty. syrup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Genius. That's a, that's a that's a new one on me. I have to say. So, Jonathan, what's mm. your favorite apple liquor, if you will? Well, <laughs> you know, well, you know. you know, there's a long, um, you know, there's a long, long history of apple um, liqueur in Europe, uh, Calvados, which mm-hmm. is essentially apple um, whiskey from northern France. Um, there are ciders, there are French ciders, there are Spanish ciders. Um, you know, this is a long history of, you know, making stuff out of, um, out of apples. Um, you know who I really, um, and, and they make cider, but they also make, um, some more traditional apple wines is, um, Russell Orchards Mm. out in, um, Ipswich. Oh, I'm not They make a lot, they make, they make dry cider, uh, they make some varietal, they make a great, um, uh, they make a great apple wine out of Baldwin Ooh. apple, which oh. is a really tart, really zippy um, apple. And they make something called Perry, which is a hard pear um, cider, which is very, very old school, mm. um, very con- very country. Um, you know, when these things are, are dry, when all of the sugar is taken out of them, they really start to reveal I, – I know I'm going all like wine geek here. Yeah. But they, <laughs> But they start to reveal a lot of flavors that are in the background that normally you don't get because they're just overwhelmed by the yumminess mm. of the cider, um, of the cider uh, flavor. Um, so Russell Orchards is great, and also up in Lebanon, New Hampshire, is a, um, a brewery called Farnham Hill. Wow! Uh, and they again they really specializing in dry. Um, Dry ciders, um, and uh, Farnham, Farnham Hill is the uh, cider uh, farm or the cider house, and then the orchard is called Poverty Lane. And that's oh. one of the best orchards to buy yeah. heirloom apples that are impossible to find anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about heirloom mm. apples. What are, what are they? Well, <laughs> it, heirloom's a funny word because uh, it, a lot of times when you're talking about heirloom tomatoes, you're talking about tomatoes that have been where you keep the seeds from one tomato and then you save them and you plant them next year and you sort of create this unbroken chain. 
heirloom apples, because apples don't actually grow true from seed, if you uh, apples com- are heterozygous and they combine genes from both parents, right. so every seed is a new variety, hmm. which is actually kind of mind-blowing. But um, So you can't really preserve heirloom apples that way. But heirloom apples basically refer to just antique apples, an- apples that have been around for a while. And we have apples. We have the Roxbury Russet Apple, which mm. is native to Boston, mm-hmm. wow. dates back to 1630, hmm. which is really incredible. So um, farms are realizing that people want diversity. Back There was one time where there were 14,000 apple varieties being grown in the United States back by the late 1800s. Now we're down to 400 that are grown in any amount, any sort of commercially uh, noticeable amount. Um, there, But there are more. And, and farms are adding, instead of just having rows and rows of Max and Cortlands, they're adding these heirloom varieties. And Russell is one. There's Red Apple Farm in Phillipston, Smolik Farm in North Andover, Neshoba. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Neshoba before, Shelburne Farm in Stowe. Wow. The list is growing. And um, people are really excited. So I would so recommend going and buying as many varieties as you can and just try them because you'll be amazed. Some of them will taste like lemon. Some of them will, like this pink pearl apple will taste like strawberry. Some of them are spicy. Um, it's so much fun. And the diversity, the one thing I've learned kind of out talking to people about apples since this book came out is just how fun it is for people to realize that this one thing that seems very familiar, mm. that you have a lot of childhood memories about, is actually a whole universe of flavors that they, mm. you just haven't had a chance to try. It's sort of like the the aspirin of um, food. Yeah. (laughs) If you think about it that way. Yeah. I will confess that your book is so beautiful, and every time I look at the pictures and everything, I get so hungry that instead of making the dish, I then go out and purchase the apple crisp. (laughs) But I'm in the mode. Yes. (laughs) Just so you know. As long as you're enjoying the season, that's all that matters. I'm in the mode. I'm going to make something this year, though. Yeah, Amy's Amy's book is what we call a gateway book. Exactly. It takes me all the way. Right. (laughs) Now, I know uh, for for, uh, attentive listeners, I promise to talk about um, Greek uh, food festivals, but, you know, we're just having too much fun with apples, so that's the next conversation. Yes. Sue me about it. (laughs) And and plus, Jonathan has been on the case letting us know that uh, Greeks has a favorite white wine that is very popular now. So we'll, we could we'll have an all Greek oh, yeah. We can have an chat. all Greek. We may have oh, another yeah. conversation about that, but I'm just loving all of this. So your favorite recipe, is there one, um, In the Amy, book. In the book. Uh, mm-hmm. Boy, there's a, there's, okay, so there's one thing that I would love to just people to take away. Um, app, fruit that, that ripens at the same time tends to go really well. Mm-hmm. With, so um, like apple, you know, late season raspberries and apples, people don't usually pair those. They're really good. I have mm. a recipe for an huh. apple raspberry tart. Um, also, apples and pears are so good in a pie. And I have an apple pear cobbler with a lemon cornmeal biscuit topping. Mm. It's such so delicious. Oh, I would totally eat that. <laughs> and then yeah, the I other know. one, this is like a sweet and savory, is a pork and apple pie. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So <laughs> crazy good. It's like a layer of so spiced pork, ground pork on the bottom. And then a layer of apples on top, sliced apples, and it's all wrapped up in a cheddar uh, sage crust. And it's so good for br- if you're having brunch, if you're doing an open house party in the holidays. Um, and you just put that out. It can be served hot. It can be served at room temperature, mm. kind of British in, mm. in style, but so good and really good with cider. You really, know, really yeah. good. You know what my favorite thing is? What? When you take an apple tart. And set it on fire. Can you do that, Amy? Can you put that? <laughs> can you put the? Can you put the apple, the Calvados, the Calvados yeah. on it, yeah. and yeah. then yeah. set it on fire? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You want me to eat tasty. something? Just set it on fire at the table. I'm weak for that. Sort <laughs> yeah, of thing. I have to. And say. the other one thing I wanted because I brought in some these two New England made cheeses. Put 
apples in your grilled mm-hmm. cheese. It's oh, yes. so crazy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, little thin slices. Okay, we're putting up mm-hmm. some information on the web for folks who have listened to some of this and gotten hungry and thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> so you can follow up because I learned a lot today myself. I thank both of you for always being informative thank and you. fun <laughs> and joining so me fun. today. Great, great to be here. Uh, Amy Traverso is a senior lifestyle editor for Yankee Magazine and the author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Jonathan Alsop is the founder of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lover's Devotional, 365 Days of Knowledge, Advice, and Lore for the Arden Aficionado. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed and including Lanyap, our Something Extra segment. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Catherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.